Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Exodus 33 and 34 is where we will uh, be this morning. Feel free to turn there. And since Nate went long, Nate's also going to do announcements at the very end. So it's fantastic. (laughs) You know, that was all really just good and exciting. And now I'm going to be a terrible downer. So here's a question to transition us. Have you ever been in a relationship or maybe you've not been in it, but you've been impacted by it or witnessed it, where that relationship for a season or a time or just period is defined by betrayal. I'll never forget this, this moment sitting in a room. It was, it was like this lunch gathering, 20-something people. And for some reason, this artist was like doing this mini little concert thing. Uh, and it was one of the most awkward experiences of my life. And he's still processing so much in this room with like 20 of us. And he's kind of sharing the stories, you know, how it is at a, a concert. Or at, yeah, at a concert. He's sharing stories before he tells the songs. And he gets to this one. And he's talking about how his family is literally falling apart in this moment because of sexual sins he had committed. And that his wife is just struggling with whether or not they should stay together. There's separation from his kids. And this man is, is broken. And he starts to talk about this song where... He uh, is describing his, his wife asking him to kind of run these, these errands to go to this place, but that how when he did it, it reminded him of these places he used to go and these things he used to do. And so he describes that path. And like the song, it's, I think, a, a really good song, but it's, it's agonizingly emotional as you can feel kind of this awkward, painful tension of that betrayal and of how the relationship has changed. Maybe you've felt that, maybe you've seen that, maybe you've experienced that. That awkwardness, that pain, that discomfort, a changed relationship is where we find ourselves in Exodus 33 and 34. God had just committed to his people, his people had committed to them, and it took hardly any time at all for them to then go and reject him completely. I I talked last week how it was kind of like the equivalent of a a couple getting married, signing the marriage license, but not completely. It's not signed by the witnesses, and then they're on the, the honeymoon, and the husband walks back into the room, and the wife is with another man. Like That's kind of the context of what is happening here, and that marriage license gets ripped in two, and another one is needed. God's people, after all that God has done for them, have rejected him, have betrayed him in this moment. Moses, actually in his anger, chucks the Ten Commandments on these these stone tablets, symbolizing this break in the covenants. But then God forgives. God relents of his anger, though it was there. God wants to continue the relationship. What we see, though, in in Exodus 32, 33, 34, is that though Israel's sin did not break the relationship they had with the Father, with God, it absolutely changed it. Though their sin didn't break the relationship, it absolutely 
changed it. Let's read 33, beginning in, in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, go, leave here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. By the way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have generations there. And then you had over 400 years of this family being enslaved in Egypt. So hundreds of years of God holding on to and being faithful to his promise. Maybe you need to know this morning that God does not ever once break his promises. Verse 2. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. God has good plans, abundant, flourishing plans in mind for his people. And then the bad news. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. It's kind of a a weird term, but you can kind of just think of, of somebody lifting their head, lifting their chin proudly in defiance of anything and anyone coming against them. You hold your head up high. They're a stiff necked people. Otherwise, God says, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and did not put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites again, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. If you remember two weeks ago, Ben taught, and I thought he did an amazing job with a challenging set of chapters describing God's plans for the tabernacle, where God would give his presence to be housed in the middle of their camp. You can almost think of it like a city, though. There's a lot of people. It's not like a, a small campsite where you're roasting s'mores. This is a big city, and God is saying, in the midst of it, I will be there. I will be present. I'm going to make my home. I will be in your midst. Your your lives will be built centrally upon the foundation of who I am. It will be given to you as it has not been given to a people since the garden. Like this is different and good news. And everything Ben taught on two weeks ago is entirely irrelevant in this moment for Israel because God is saying, I am not giving you my presence in that way after all. Israel's sin did not break sever completely the relationship with God, but it did change it. We continue in verse seven. Now, Moses took a tent and set it up outside the camp, far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Outside the camp, far away from the camp, those are important words. And again, this is not like a small campsite, like 20 friends are going camping. This is a city in the midst of a desert. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside, far away from the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. They would watch from a distance, keyword distance, and see that God was there. He was present but he wasn't with them in the midst of the city. All the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent. They would stand up and bow and worship each one at the door of his tent. Think about that. Just not that long before this, when they didn't receive what they wanted in the timing that they desired, they rejected God and moved on to a new hero. But here they are, repentant, 
They've repented of their sin. They've literally turned around and now they're bowing down, worshiping God in this moment. It would seem as if things were much better. Each one at the door of his tent, the Lord spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp from a long distance, but his assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of his tent. Once again, betrayal, Israel's sin, did not break the relationship they had with God, but it wholeheartedly, completely, functionally, and the everyday stuff of life changed how they would relate and interact with, speak to, know this God. Now the way that they got to experience the presence of God was holistically less than design, not nearly what it was meant to be. Do you or have you ever felt that in your relationship with God? It's a question I've been, been pondering this week. If Israel's sin didn't break, but it did change their relationship with God in really negative ways, does our sin, though it doesn't break our relationship with God, does it change our relationship with God? Do you feel, for a moment, let's forget whether it's true or not, put the facts aside, do you feel like when we sin, our sin, our choices change our relationship with God? I think these are important questions to consider. And actually, I feel like theologically, this is a really simple answer, but as I started processing and praying about it, I had to call like five or six people and go like, hmm. What is, what is true here? Because I feel like the answer is yes. It does change our relationship. But I want to look at what Jesus himself says. If you have a, a Bible, flip now to Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> and I think we see Jesus answer this, this question in a, in a really powerful way. Jesus is teaching people about their relationship with God the Father and what has changed now over thousands of years. Something is different. We read this. Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. In essence, Dad, you have a lot of money. And most often, people don't get that money, this inheritance, until the dad is dead. But Dad, give it to me now. The only thing you have to offer me that I want is the money. It'd be better off if you were dead. That's harsh. And that's what this son is communicating Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, right? All that his dad had accumulated, stewarded, protected, built, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing that was quick. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. This is all symbolic. Pigs are dirty, unclean animals. They are unworthy. If you have this moment of contact with a pig, you can't go into the temple to worship in the day that Jesus is telling this story. So what Jesus is communicating is that the son who used to wear the, the clothing of royalty, 
who was the heir to all of this, who had complete access to the Father, that's all torn in two. He is now with the pigs. He's unclean. He's separated. He has nothing left. His identity is fully gone as that son. That is exactly, precisely why these uh, details are provided in this context. He went to work for one of the citizens. He's feeding the pigs. Verse 16, he's so hungry, he longs to eat from the pods the pigs are eating, but no one would give him any. That is how low it has, has come in this moment. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he was right. He was no longer worthy to be called the son of his father after all he had done. Have you ever felt that way? That you are not worthy to be called a son or daughter of the most high king? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. This is his plan, but he's not went through with it yet. Verse 20, so he gets up and he goes to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, meaning he'd not spoken in any words, he'd not displayed repentance or anything of that sort, while he's still distanced a long way away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. That verse is all about identity. The father is saying, here is the robe that marks you as who you are, my son, for that has not been lost. Here is the ring that gives you power, the symbolic moment. It's like a passport and a credit card combined into one. This is what made him who he was. You are my son, and you've been awful, <laughs> and you're not worthy of it, but that does not matter because I will not let you lose that identity. This is who you are. Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Don't miss that last verse. God throws great parties. We should too. Flip now to Romans chapter 8. Paul, kind of writing on a more systematic theology uh, approach, says this. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Here's the definition of condemned. Sentenced to a particular punishment, especially death, or officially declared unfit for use. A person 
or a building can experience the truth of this word. If a building is condemned, can't be used, it's unsafe, it's, it's not worthwhile, it's over. If a person is condemned, they're sentenced. What we read here is that because purely of the work and love and sacrifice of the person of Jesus, that moment of condemnation will never be a reality for us. While this son who went off and wasted everything should have been condemned, he was not, not because of what he had done, but purely because of the love of his father. And that is something easy to miss, easy to lose sight of. The, the older brother in this parable certainly loses sight of it. Let's continue to read. We're not going to put this up on the screen, but, but just listen to this dialogue. <clears throat> now the older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound, and his anger and emotion starts to rise up and well within him. He becomes angry and did not want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Listen to this language. But when this son of yours, not when my brother, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. I think we often think the way this older brother does. The older brother thinks to himself, I've earned the right to be your son. I've honored you. I've been worthy. I've been trustworthy. I've done what was right. I've avoided what was wrong. And yet, here you are, unjustly giving to my brother, who we won't refer to as that, to this son of yours, everything back, though all he's done is lose the right to have it. How often is that the mindset we have? Listen to the words of the father. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they throw a great party because, again, God throws great parties. You ever think about what happened the next day? And the day after that and the day after that? I bet it was really awkward and painful. I bet from the father's perspective, everything was erased and he just wanted to embrace his son and help him return to, to what life should have been. But I'm guessing the son struggled with that. Based on what we see in the text, I'm guessing the son was filled with shame. Do you ever feel shame in relationship to your relationship with God? I'm guessing the son was confused and struggled and probably felt this needed pressure and perception that he needed to just uh, apologize profusely again and again and again, or that he had no room for error, that he had to be perfect from this moment forward because he'd already done enough to that family and to his father, or perhaps that now he needed to make up for all of the error and the bad with good. And so he had to work harder than ever to earn, like the older brother had. But that would have been a pressure. That would have been shame. That would have been a set of expectations that the father did not put on the son, but the son put on himself. 
Is it possible that you put those, that set of expectations, shame upon yourself, and that's something the Father has never done? Back to, to Romans 8. It's a little bit long, but I just want to reread this, this whole section. <laughs> For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who has raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. Do you notice the language of in you? There's no tent of meeting for us. There's no distance far, far outside of the camp where you can go to approach God's presence because your sin has changed your relationship with him. Rather, you have access to Jesus by the power of the Spirit within you always, meaning in all moments, without having to earn that right back, without having to apologize again and again, just because the Father is love. So then, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For Israel, it was true that though their sin did not break the relationship with God, it absolutely changed it. But for us, that is not the case. Though our sin should have broken our relationship, though our ongoing sin should change the relationship we have with God when we repent, God just says, here's the rope. Here's the ring. You are mine. Not my slave, not my servant. You are my son or my daughter. You are to be celebrated and cherished. You are worthy, not because of anything you've said, but because I say so. And don't let anyone tell you anything different. I want to close. Back in the, the book of Exodus, Moses did a lot of great things and, and made plenty of mistakes as a leader, as all leaders do, yet he understood something really profound. There's some things he got just so right. I want to read again from, from his words here in Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 16. Moses said to the Lord after all this, look, you have told me lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He's not confident by himself. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Now, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, please teach me your ways, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. Now consider that this nation is your people. Then he replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. God says this to Moses. That's what Moses wanted to hear. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then listen to what Moses says. Can you picture yourself saying this? If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. In essence, what what Moses is saying is that if the presence of God did not go with them, it would all be hopeless. Do you live that way? Do you value the presence of God to that extent? They didn't have the luxury of having the spirit of God within them because of the work of Christ. They had to go far, far outside the camp to a different distance to be with God. We don't have to do that. But do you value and cherish and realize the gift of the presence of God that you've been given every moment? I think you can kind of summarize what Moses is saying and praying here in this way. There is no place worth going without the presence of Jesus. There is no task worth trying without the presence of Jesus. And there is no life worth living without the presence of Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.